Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we are continuing in a sermon series that we've been in uh, for the past uh, several months. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we've called this series Origins, because in those first 11 chapters, we do see the origins or the foundation of so much of what we believe as Christians about the world and about ourselves and about our God. In those early chapters, uh, the author of Genesis is laying a foundation that really and truly the rest of the redemptive story of the Bible is built upon. And so uh, we this morning are going to be in Genesis chapter 10. Now, ordinarily, it's our custom uh, at this moment to uh, invite another reader uh, to, uh, to read the scripture text for the sermon. But um, there is nobody in our church that I dislike enough to have to have to ask them to read this. This would be a cruel punishment indeed, uh, because Genesis chapter 10 is a genealogy. It is a list of names. It's one of those strange chapters of the Bible that we in Western cultures struggle to know what to do with, uh, because this is not uh, the value of importance for us uh, many times as it was for the ancient Near Eastern people, or particularly for the Israelites. It was crucial for them to keep a record of God's redemptive working through their history, through their families, to track the way that, as we learned in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman is overcoming the seed of the serpent, that God is working through that redemptive seed going through Israel. And so it was important for them. So we're not going to read, uh, even I uh, am not going to attempt to read all of Genesis 10 in one breath. I'll, I'll give you a flavor of it. It starts with, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Togmarah, and so on it goes for 32 verses. And so we are going to look at uh, a good chunk of Genesis chapter 10. But we'll look at it as we go, as we walk through it preaching. You know, there's another chapter, uh, there's another uh, concern that weighed on me this week as I prepared this sermon out of Genesis chapter 10. Not only the strangeness and the foreignness, the otherworldliness of sitting here and reading those names, but also the pressing sense that we live in this world with very real and pressing problems. Right, all of us have been isolated in our homes uh, for I think it's seven weeks now. Uh, we've lived uh, in some fear of a disease that's out there. We've seen its effects on the lives that have lo- been lost. I know many in our church have lost people that they know, people that are close to them. We've seen the economic devastation of this disease. We recognize this in this season that in this world we have very pressing problems. And then uh, as it's been hitting us over really the last month or more, but in in an especially vivid way, 
uh, this week as the video of the shooting of Ahmaud Arbery was released. It's hit us again that we live in a world with problems, right? That story, that, that, that tragic loss of life, that taking of a life happened just up our road within about an hour's drive of my house. Ahmad Arbery lost his life. So this week, I felt the problem that many of us feel in general when we turn to the Bible, which is that we live in this world with our problems, very pressing problems, that we don't know how to solve. And yet the Bible seems to speak from another world, a world so incredibly distant from our own that it seems hard to imagine that it could offer real and tangible solutions to the problems that we encounter in this world. And so I felt a problem that, that preachers have felt for 2,000 plus years, which is I'm going to be speaking to a bunch of people who are feeling the very pressing realities of problems in these bodies, in this world, with a list of names from thousands of years ago. What possible hope, what possible uh, meaning could be derived from such an otherworldly, other culturally rooted chapter of the Bible. And yet, as I studied this chapter, I came to realize that in some really, really pressing and important ways, what we realize is what Christians have realized as they open their Bibles in the midst of the problems of this world, what we've realized for thousands of years is that through the Holy Spirit, working in those people in that world, speaks very directly to us and our problems in this world. Because we are one people, one uh, human race. It is one God, one spirit doing the speaking. And so in this genealogy, this list of names, if you look at the very uh, last verse, Genesis 10, 32, we get the basic reason for why Moses is giving us this list of names. We read this in verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. It's the perspective of Genesis chapter 10 that all of the peoples of the earth share a common origin and unity in one family. That all uh, human life goes back to some original ancestors. Uh, first, uh, of course, as we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve, our first parents who were called to go and to fill the to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. And then again, as their family began to grow, as it de uh, disintegrated into sin and violence and lust, and God brought the flood and concentrated the human family back down to Noah and to his family. And then gave to Noah that same call again to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth with image-bearing children of God and to subdue the world. And now in Genesis chapter 10, we get this story of what that looked like, of Noah's children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and his great-great-grandchildren and so on and so forth, growing out from that family to become the nations of the earth the ethnicities of the earth, the cultures of the earth, all coming from one common family tree. It's the perspective of the scriptures 
that all of us, regardless of nation or ethnicity, regardless of race or religion, that all of us are one human family, that all of us belong to God in a very particular way because He is our Creator, He's the one who stamped His image upon us, and that every single one of us bear His likeness and His image. And therefore, we can look to one another as image bearers of God who share in our same flesh and blood realities and all of whom find our highest uh, life and love in God himself. Genesis chapter 10 is truly a unique chapter, not only of the Bible, uh, but a unique section uh, of ancient literature. No other ancient religious text has a story like Genesis chapter 10. Other, if you look at Israel's neighbors, you look at the Canaanites and the Babylonians, the Egyptians, they do have creation stories. They have stories about how they believe the world came to be. Many of them even have flood stories. They're lingering cultural memories of the flood and their attempts to explain it. But none of those ancient books have a Genesis chapter 10. What scholars sometimes refer to as the table of nations. None of them have this, uh, this book that explains that their God is the God, not only of their tribe, not only of their nation and their place, but he is the God of the entire world, of all of the peoples, of all of the earth. That was Israel's uh, unique claim from the beginning of Genesis. And we'll see that play out over the rest of the story of the Bible leading up to the book of Revelation from cover to cover. It's the story not of a tribal deity, of the particular God of Israel, and other, other nations had their gods. It's the story of the Creator God who made all of us, who loves all of us, and who's pursuing all of us in His mercy. That's the story that the Bible tells. Even as from here, Genesis is going to start to narrow in more and more on one particular uh, family, the family of Abraham and the nation of Israel, and the kingdom of David, leading up to the birth of Christ, and then into the church. Though the story does uh, narrow from this wide-angle lens, it's always with the particular vision that this is a story for the whole world, that this is a story for all people. 19th century uh, German biblical scholar Franz Dielich, great Old Testament uh, commentator, put it this way. It says, from the earliest pages, the idea of the people of God implies that they have to regard all nations as future partakers with them of the same salvation and to embrace them with an interest of hopeful love unheard of elsewhere in the ancient world. To embrace their neighbors in an interest of hopeful love unheard of elsewhere in the ancient world. That was Israel's vision of their neighbors, their pagan neighbors, their non-Israelite neighbors, their neighbors that they looked at as cultural, ethnic, and religious others, was that they did not have permission to view those neighbors with prejudice or with hatred, with judgment. They were bound by the story of their God to view those neighbors as their eventual heirs in God's kingdom. 
hopeful love that looked at their neighbors, their Egyptian slave masters, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Romans, to look at them with hopeful love as God's image bearers for whom God was concerned. Okay, so the story goes forward from that wide-angle perspective. In Genesis 10, uh, though it is largely a list of names, it, it breaks down from the sons of Ham, the sons of Japheth, and then the sons of Shem. But even in that list of names, the author goes in and zooms in on two particular people in this overall list of names. And they're two very important people. Anytime the Bible is giving a genealogy, and at one point it just breaks the list and goes into detail, we ought to look and wonder what it is that the author is trying to tell us in those details. And so the first of these men that get a more detailed description is Nimrod. Nimrod, great name, was the great-grandson of Noah. Uh, he was one of the sons of Ham, one of those that was under uh, God's curse because of the sin and rebellion of his forefather. But here's what we learn about Nimrod, starting in verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went on to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kalah, that is, the great city. Nimrod, uh, the first on earth uh, that we're told here uh, is to be a mighty man. And now there's something about reading that that initially sounds positive, right? Nimrod is valued for his strength, for his might, for his creative uh, production. He founds some of the great cities of the world. We're told here that he not only founds Babel or Babylon, but he also founds Assyria and the great city of Nineveh. So this was uh, someone who accomplished a lot. He was a strong man. We're told here that he was a mighty man and a mighty hunter before the Lord. This word, uh, a mighty man before the Lord. It's easy for us to, to miss the original nuance, but this, we, we carry something of this expression when we refer to a dictator as a strong man. right? You might have heard uh, Castro in... Uh, Cuba being described as a strongman leader, or Putin in Russia being described as a strongman leader. We use these words to describe one who rules his people through fear and might, the threat of violence and actual violence. Someone who views his own role as a leader, as being uh, the strong one, the one whose opinion and whose directive cannot be questioned, the one who views his people as there fundamentally to serve his agenda, and the one who views his neighbors fundamentally not is people to be loved, neighbors to be uh, worked alongside of in alliances, but fundamentally views their neighbors as competition and potential conquests. That is who Nimrod is. That's who Nimrod is described as being. A strong man, the world's first uh, dictator city builder. He gets credit or perhaps better put, he gets blame for, for founding the two great enemy nations of Israel, Babylon and Assyria, the two empires that carried off uh, Israel into exile, into Assyria, and Judah into exile, 
into Babylon. That this, those two kingdoms, there's the same fingerprints on them. And they're the fingerprints of Nimrod, the strong man, the tyrant, the dictator, the one who looks out on the world in competition and in conquest. We're told that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. This was the metaphor uh, that they used to describe Nimrod, that he was a hunter king, right? A king who, uh, like a hunter, looked out on his neighbors as his prey, who looked out on his people as his prey, who looked out on his less powerful neighbors as prey to potentially be conquered, their resources stolen. He was a hunter king. And as, of course, the the story of the Bible plays out, we learn that there was a different metaphor that was meant to govern Israel's kingship, that was meant to govern what's uh, shown in the Bible to be true kingship, true noble royalty. Israel's kings were not meant to be hunter kings, but meant to be shepherd kings. Right, David, the great king of Israel, was called to be a shepherd A man after God's own heart. How does a shepherd relate to his flock? He relates to his flock with strength, right? Defending them, attacking their enemies, keeping them safe, guiding them, providing for them. If necessary, even protecting them at the cost of his own life. That a shepherd king is one who views his people as his beloved to be sheltered and protected and nourished not as his prey to be taken advantage of and manipulated. The scriptures show us that it's only shepherds who are truly warrant of being followed as kings. Israel was meant uh, to be led by shepherd kings, not by hunter kings. And yet, uh, the kings of this world, the rulers of this world, are far, far, far more often like Nimrod than they are like the Good Shepherd, right? The kings of this world, by and large, whether you're talking about Nimrod in Babel, whether you're talking about Alexander in Greece or Caesar in Rome or Stalin in Russia, the story of the world's history is largely the story of hunter kings, right? It's largely the story of rulers who are bent on their own ego their own aggrandizement, their own building themselves up at the expense of their people and at the expense of their neighbors. That has been far too often, usually the way of the world. Augustine, the great Christian saint of the fourth century, describes this as the city of man. Human culture, human cities like Babel and Nineveh and the cities that that Nimrod builds, human society built primarily on the love of self. That it starts with self-interested, self-obsessed rulers who view those under them as existing for their needs. But it doesn't end with them. It's also a society. It's a people that's built on the foundation of self-love. Getting what you can from who you can, whatever it costs, and not being afraid to use violence to get it and to keep it and to hoard it. That is the way of the city of man. And now, friends, the people of God, We need to hear this because we need to be reminded that our hope is not in Nimrod-like warrior kings, that our hope is not in even ourselves becoming little rulers, 
getting everything that we need, hoarding our privilege and holding on to it, our wealth and our power. Israel and all of God's people have needed this reminder again and again. When Israel was told to select a king, they didn't initially pick a shepherd king like David. They picked Saul because he was taller and bigger than everyone else. They picked him because he had been successful in warfare. They said, give us a hunter king. When they, uh, when they faced, after they were um, getting the promised land, when they faced the threat of the Assyrians coming in from the north to capture them, their temptation was to go to Egypt for aid. Before Isaiah tells them, no, don't go to another hunter king to get freedom from this one. Don't look to the mighty man. When we hear the crowd in Jerusalem, fresh off shouting, crucify him to the ears of Pilate with Jesus standing at his side. When Pilate says he claims to be your king and they with one voice chant, we have no king but Caesar. That is the people of God choosing the mighty man, the warrior king, Caesar, over the suffering, loving shepherd king of Jesus. The city of God is not made to be led uh, through the pretensions and empty promises of powerful men who offer security in this life through violence. It's meant to be lived under the shepherd king of Israel. Now, we in the U.S. often live with this sense, this uh, sometimes earned, sometimes strange sense, that we are immune to all of this, right? We believe that our national history, uh, we believe that our Constitution and our democracy mean that we don't have to worry about this Nimrod impulse that afflicts so many of the societies of humanity, right? Because we, we do think you know, we're grateful to God for the right to choose our leaders, for the right to choose our representatives. That we can believe that the strongman leader has no threat to us, that this Nimrod impulse isn't a threat to us living uh, where we live and when we live. But friends, we need to hear that we are not different than the rest of humanity throughout the rest of history. What democracy and what American culture very often does is it does say Look, we don't have to work, live in fear of a Nimrod-like dictator taking over. But what it does hold out to us is the prospect of each and every one of us becoming a little Nimrod, a little warrior king, bent on defending our rights, our wealth, our power, our privilege at all costs. We can become, as residents of this city of man, people who are fundamentally about ourselves, Right, the, the, the wonderful and life-giving and liberating words of our Declaration of Independence, that, we're, that each and every one of us is entitled to the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. While that is wonderful and good, when my life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness comes at the expense of my neighbor, right? we in America can believe that our rights matter more than anything else, and they're to be clung to, because we are kings, each and every one of us. We were all in our community heartbroken and shattered over the course of the last, uh, the, I mean, the, Ahmaud Arbery was killed near the end of February. 
we've waited uh, for weeks uh, without uh, any charges coming uh, in that case. Slowly, the news started to build until this week the video was released. And what started off, I, me I remember reading about it for the first time in the Times Union maybe a month ago, and then uh, going back and reading it in the Brunswick paper and realizing this story. But then this week, it captured national headlines. This week, it started to uh, blow up on social media, right? This week, it went from something that we think might have happened out there that we heard about, and sadly, we get far too used to hearing about these stories. And then this week, it became something that, that hit us, that was in our face, that we were looking at it with our own eyes, a tragic murder and a tragic lack of justice. We saw there, in some small way, what it looks like when people who conceive of themselves as hunter kings, people who see, that, see it as their right to protect themselves, to take justice into their own hands without trial or jury, go out on a vigilante attack, and then his justice is denied. There's something in us that wants to look at that as a one-off tragic occurrence. Isn't that a terrible thing? A terrible murder? We long for justice in the one instance without realizing that it is a chapter in a longer story that it is a piece of a more tragic tale, a symptom of a deeper disease, that we live uh, in a world where sadly, and in a nation where sadly, uh, violence against African Americans is not, um, it's not the exception, but far too often it's been the rule. It's not, uh, what do they say, uh, it's a feature, not a bug, of life in America. Uh, far too often. And this story in Genesis chapter 10 helps us to make some sense of that because it shows us that, yes, we bear God's image, but we also have uh, the family resemblance of Nimrod, of the one who doesn't care who he has to hurt in order to get into a to get and to keep wealth and power and privilege that this world far too often tilts in the direction of the privileged and the powerful and away from the vulnerable and the oppressed. That far too often our cries for justice fall on deaf ears. That it has been that way. That was Israel's experience in Babylon and in Assyria. And it so often is our experience as we live, as we long in this world. The story goes on from there. Uh, thank God it does not end with Nimrod in his kingdom. But if you look at verse 25, this is the other uh, man that it goes into some detail uh, in a description of. And his name is Peleg, not Pegleg, Peleg. Uh, and here's what we learn about Peleg in verse 25. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Peleg uh, means in Hebrew division, for in his days the earth was divided. Peleg was alive during uh, the judgment of Babel, which we'll read about in Genesis chapter 11 uh, next week. 
But he was there in that moment where under Nimrod's leadership and under gathering his resources in Babel, the humanity attempted to ascend to God through their own power and resources, through building a great city and a great tower. And so God uh, distributes the peoples. He confuses their languages and divides them into the various cultures and tribes of our world. Now, the various cultures and tribes and ethnicities of the nations are not purely because of God's judgment. We see here in Genesis 10 that it's also just a function of humanity filling the earth and subduing it as we were called to do. And yet Peleg is the one who said, of whom it said, during his days, the peoples were divided. He is in the line of Shem, uh, and he becomes the great-grandfather of Abraham. Oh, excuse me, yeah, the great, the great, great grandfather of Abraham. It's through Peleg's family at the division of the nations at Babel, through his line that God will begin to work redemptively, to bring Abraham to enter into covenant with him, to, tell, to reveal himself to him as Yahweh, the God who is. It's through Abraham's family uh, that the patriarchs come, that the covenants develop, that Israel is born into the world. It's through his family that the Redeemer comes in Jesus. And so Peleg is the note of hope here in Genesis chapter 10. That as the nations rage, as they go on their way, as human culture builds itself up in resistance to God, that he has a people, that he chooses a people, that he works through a people for the sake of the world. This is uh, the doctrine of election. Right? We, you hear that word sometimes, you know, far too often the, uh, the theological locus of election becomes the occasion for uh, dorm room arguments and uh, Facebook debates. But at its core, election isn't some esoteric doctrine that happens back in the mind of God in eternity past. At its core, election is the belief that God chooses a people by his grace, not for their own sake but for the sake of the world. The call of election has always been not about the self. It's not about Israel being better or stronger or mightier or somehow more righteous, moral, or wise than any of their neighbors. It was God saying, I choose this people for the sake of those people. I'm going to reveal myself to this people to show them what life in covenant with me looks like, to work my plan to bring the Redeemer through them, for the sake of the whole world. To be God's people, to be God's chosen, means to bear God's mission. It means to be called by God for the sake of the world. And we see that in Peleg, through Abraham, through Israel, and ultimately to Christ. I love uh, this next reading that we're going to look at. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10. You can't understand Genesis 10 without Luke 10. I love uh, the myriad ways that the Bible opens up. Even though it's a, it's a book written by many different authors over thousands of years, these storylines that God writes into his story are just uh, jaw-dropping. We're going to look at Luke chapter 10 together. After this, the Lord, that's Jesus. This is a gospel account, so it's a, a narrative of Jesus' life. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others 
and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, earlier in Luke, uh, Jesus had sent out the 12, his 12 apostles, to go and to be his witnesses in the cities uh, of his area. And yet here, he, he rehashes that story. Only now it's not his 12, uh, 12 disciples. It's not the 12 apostles, the founding uh, missionary apostles of the church. It's these 72 others that he sends out. Commentators are agreed that what Jesus is doing here in choosing 72 is a direct reference to Genesis chapter 10, where in the Septuagint, Jesus' Bible would have been the translated text of Genesis in Hebrew into Greek. In the table of nations, there are 72 nations that are founded in Genesis chapter 10. So the Genesis 10 gives the foundation of the 72 different tribes of this world, the 72 nations that fill this earth. And so Jesus says, into this world of 72 nations, I will send 72 ambassadors, 72 witnesses into this world to bear witness to my kingdom in all of the kingdoms of this world. So verse 2, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He says, look at the world around you. Look at your neighbors. They're not a threat to you. They're not, you're not in competition with them. They are the Lord's. They are a planting that belongs to him, and the harvest is ripe. He is their creator. He's created the nations of this world. Now you go and gather them back into the Lord's store. Go and pronounce his grace to them. Reap a harvest and bring them home. And go your way. Verse 3, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Look, guys, Nimrod is out there. There are hunter kings out there. Not all of the 72 nations of this world are going to receive you with gladness. Not all of them are going to welcome you with open arms. The hunter kings of this world will not necessarily lay down their swords and begin to follow the shepherd king of Israel. I send you out is lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace be to this house. The kingdom of the shepherd king of Israel goes forward not by war, but by peace. It's not about subduing them. It's not about winning those arguments. It's not about somehow obligating them to embrace your faith, but to go and to announce peace that the king comes with an offer of peace. Verse 6, And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. It feels like thousands of years ago that we could just walk into a stranger's house and eat a meal. Um, but in these days, prior to social distancing, he sends them out and he says, Go into their house. Eat what they make you. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick. Right? You're not going to take life. You're not going uh, to win. You're going to heal. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom is here. Verse 10, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, 
Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day uh, for Sodom than for that town. He calls back to mind the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, who are referenced originally in Genesis 10. So it's another way for him to bookmark this section and to say, look, guys, I'm talking about Genesis 10. This is the gospel answer to the scattering of this world. This is the gospel answer to the warrior kings of this world. This is the way that the shepherd king of Israel brings out his kingdom. It's through ordinary, weak, unprepared messengers. Right? He sends them without any money, without any food, just out like lambs to be slaughtered. And it feels like that's how we go out sometimes, isn't it? We don't have all the answers. We don't feel equipped. We don't know all that we're meant to do. We, we look at our own purse and we go, man, I don't even have enough for me. And yet God sends us out as his ambassadors, as his missionaries, in a world ruled by warrior kings to say, no, no, the shepherd king of Israel is gathering a flock from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation, saying, come, Regardless of ethnicity, regardless of culture, regardless of language, you belong in this one family of God. That Jesus executes justice and love and mercy for his people. And he gathers them into one family once again. Descended from one family and now gathered back into one family in Christ. And then I love, if you look at Genesis 10, 17, we'll end here. Then the 72 returned with joy. So these missionaries come back to Jesus with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They come back giddy that they've seen healing. They've been able to cast out the forces of evil. And Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The, uh, the verse that he's quoting there is Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, where Isaiah says, I saw Lucifer fall. That chapter actually has nothing to do directly with Satan and the demonic. Uh, it's actually, and then this is one, another one of those beautiful connections. Uh, it's, the, it's the boast of God at the fall of the king of Babylon. Nimrod's successor is the king of Babel. His fallen, he said, you attempted to reach to the heavens, but you've been cast down to Sheol. I saw Lucifer, the star of the morning, as a reference to the king of Babylon, fall, humbled before the God of Israel. And now Jesus is saying, look, I saw that happen as you went out carrying the gospel, as you brought healing and liberation and freedom and peace, as you pushed back the forces of the demonic and evil and darkness. I saw Satan falling because he has always been the power behind the powers of this world. He's always been the powers behind this world's kings. And Jesus says, as you go, as you announce my peace, he is falling. I give you authority to stample, to trample on serpents and scorpions. This is not uh, an appropriate verse to take up and say that we ought to be handling snakes. 
but this is, again, the prophecy of Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman. The serpent will strike at his heel, but the seed, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Jesus will crush Satan's head under our feet, as Paul says in Romans. As we go into this world as lambs among wolves, we enact the victory of God over the forces of sin and idolatry and injustice in this world. Lord, may it be so. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that it doesn't often feel like we are trampling on the serpent's head. So often in this world, we live uh, with injustice that can't seem to be made right. We live with illnesses that we cannot cure. We live with corruption that we can't untangle. And yet, Lord, you promise that it's through your great city, it's through your church, as weak and as frail, as foolish as we are, that through us, through our proclamation and our singing and our love and our prayer and our witness, that you are bringing your righteousness, justice, and peace into this world. Lord, this week we have been brokenhearted by the injustice that lingers in our nation, in our region, in our world. Lord, we do pray for justice. We pray for justice uh, in the, the death of Ahmaud Arbery. More than that, Lord, we pray for a more just world. We pray for peace. Lord, we pray um, for your peace. We pray that your peace would reign in your church. We live in a world that's divided by agendas, that's divided by opinions. Lord, help us as your church to be a sign of your peaceful reign, that here we love one another and we lay down our lives for one another and we seek to understand one another. We proclaim a message of reconciliation and peace in a broken world. Lord, we pray that as we go, uh, you would be enacting your victory, our good shepherd, through us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.